Welcome to Bewildered. I'm Martha Beck, here with Rowan Mangan. At this crazy moment in history, a lot of people are feeling bewildered, but that actually may be a sign we're on track. Human culture teaches us to come to consensus, but nature, our own true nature, helps us come to our senses. Rowan and I believe that the best way to figure it all out is by going through bewilderment into bewilderment. That's why we're here. So, Marty, I think there's a pretty good chance that our listeners are out there going, oh, wow, I have a lot of cultural messages in my head and Mm -hmm. it's not that easy to access the voice of my true nature. Yes. And I don't know, they might be thinking, is there anything else that I could do other than listening to this podcast to help me learn to listen to my heart? Well, I had this question, even as a young child, I would say, I am not happy. And people would say, well, it's all in your head. And I'd be like, I know, get it out of my head. But nobody could really help me do that. And so um, in my 20s, I sort of made up a system to help me detach from cultural messages and connect with my true nature. And it ended up being my career as a life coach and then training people to do the same thing. And I think that, you know, it's just like people who feel the urge to heal themselves, help others heal and heal the world, Mm. that... This, this term life coach sort of slots into that in our culture and yeah. people take the training to hang out a shingle and become life coaches. People take the training because it's like getting life coaching, yeah. you know, and people also take the training just to learn to access their own true nature. Yeah. It was originally just a access your own true nature course. Mm-hmm. But when you've mastered that, you really want to share it with other people and people want to be shared with and they will pay you money. So if that's the way you want to go, that's why it ended up being life coach training. But it's actually Wayfinder, which is different. It's about finding your way by connecting with your true nature and, and steering your own course. So if people are interested... You can Google Wayfinder Life Coach Training or go to MarthaBeck.com and you will find your way. Yes, you will. Hello and welcome to Bewildered, the podcast for people trying to figure it out. I'm Rowan Mangan and I'm trying to figure it out. And I'm here with Martha Beck, who figured it out when she was nine and she's here to share her wisdom. Hi, Marty. Hi. Yeah, I thought I figured it out, but it turns out that was just something that the doctor needed to remove. Oh, dear. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So it's a bewildering world out there, hence the title, Bewildered. They have spiders that are now crisscrossed with goats genetically. Crisscrossed, eh? Yes, crisscrossed is the technical word. So that they, they inserted a spider gene into this one goat's DNA. And Sounds painful. It was, yes, I'm sure it was. But he then went on to father a bunch of other goats that had the spider gene. And the female goats that are the daughters of that goat, when they uh, give milk, it turns into spider silk. And it's the most powerful fabric ever made by the hand of man and the gonad of goat. <laughs> I am bewildered. That isn't is that not bewildering? These it are the times in which we live. Is it okay if I steal "Gone Out of Goat" for my like debut album? I was going to use title? it as the name for my uh, new perfume. <laughs> <laughs> 
if you want it, I'll I'll let okay. We could get a whole line of things out. It could just be it could be the new brand. Right. Okay. Yeah. Good. That's okay. for later. Well, I, later. I actually do find the the spider goat phenomenon very bewildering. Yeah. I do not mean to make light of its yeah. absolute weirdness. Yeah. And the, the thing is that humans are just such weird creatures that we've created cultures that do bizarre things and it's wonderful to be able to make a spider goat although we don't know how it feels to the goats but um there's a big part of us that is left bewildered in the wake of such things and then we're bewildering the whole world to death which is not a good thing Mm -mm. but bewildered it struck me long ago could also be pronounced be wilder so (laughs) be wilder (laughs) duh so i thought well that's a good way that's a good way to navigate because the culture is completely insane and it pulls us all away culture is the opposite of nature if you look at it in a certain way so what about when culture loses its way if we all be a little wilder and go back to our true nature so the truth of a society is just consensus. We all decide what we say is real and true. And you get beaten up if you disagree. But if you get a little bewildered, then you don't come to consensus, you come to your senses, which is what mystics and meditators do. And it turns out they live longer and have happier lives. So there. And so we believe that if you find yourself bewildered yeah. in this world of spider goats and whatnot, that you might be on the verge of your own, a truer path and a truer place to be in the world than that defined by culture. Well said. And it can just be a little sidestep in your mind and suddenly you're wilder and everything's much more interesting. So we try to figure it out in a different kind of way. Like we don't want to figure it out back to culture. No. We want to figure it forward, if anything. Outward. Outward bound, onward, upward, onward. Wilded. Inward. Wilded. It's just that word. It's just that word. That word. Yeah, we go that I buy it. I buy it. As in I am that. What's been bewildering you this week, Marty Moon? Oh, good God. I've been out in our backyard looking at the pond, and we have these three big koi and one smaller koi, and then we went out a few weeks ago, and there were tiny fishes in the pond, and they did spawn. The tiny fishes did not spawn. The, no. the tiny fishes, point of fact, no, were probably family, the products of the spawning. This is a family podcast for the fish. It's a family <laughs> fish podcast. Little ones did not spawn. <laughs> no, the big ones spawned and made tiny ones and then ate almost all of them. <laughs> but, <laughs> and you have never seen fascination like Martha Beck with a koi pond. Oh my gosh. Baby fish. Are you kidding me? But then we put a net over the pond to keep the great blue herons from eating the baby fish in the fall when the leaves go away. Well, that's a worthy. But then I went out to watch them and there was a frog and he was trying to get in the water and he just was hopping around on this net, bewildered. Completely He's, bewildered. He must have been utterly bewildered. He like he He's tried like, to jump no into the pond. No can reach water. No can reach water. And he, ba- he, he, he jumped right toward me and then just landed by my foot and just stayed there for like five minutes. He wasn't even afraid of me. And I think he was just saying, I'm bewildered. Like, you got to yeah. help me. There's something wrong with the pond. He was just trying to take it all in. He's like, I am a frog Jesus. I do not <laughs> land on the water. I travel across the water, but I never get there. He probably was waiting for me to worship him. He probably was. He was just like or sitting there. Or kill him or kill him and then worship him. That seems to be the pattern. Yeah, that's bewildering. 
That's a whole, there's a whole other thing, a podcast in, is Jesus the toads that you lick in Australia? But anyway, I couldn't put him back in the pond in good conscience because they eat baby fish. Yeah. So I went and got him a bowl of water. <laughs> Which is just a small pond when it's you think about it. It's a substitute, but at least he can wet his little amphibious skin. So I was trying to figure but I don't know. I'm going to have to figure this out at length. Mm. It's a, no, it's a situation. I can see that. Ecosystems. It's always a situation. What have you been trying to figure out? (laughs) Well, I've been in New York this week and I have been trying to figure out like the paradox within me that wants to spend a life in New York and wants to spend a life out here in the woods. And it's very interesting, like coming to terms with this, this sense of, I mean, my God, the privilege in this, right? But like, maybe I can somehow do both. Maybe I can design a life that's not like that, The you know, is a little bit different from what the culture says um, and go sometimes like I can, I can give New York and the woods joint custody of my life. Mm. What about that? But you notice, you notice when you said that you were like, check your privilege. And it, it is, it is really true. Like we are grotesquely overprivileged. Mm. But one of my best editors of this is my daughter. And when I was writing in my book, oh, I'm so overprivileged. Here's my problem. She was like, uh, like enjoy your privilege. Don't like let it force don't let shame of privilege force you into something that you don't want so we've talked a lot you and i about how australian culture yes is even more than ours it's like don't you get don't you bloody get too big for your britches you know like (laughs) that's exactly it (laughs) thank you i just feel like i was a kangaroo in another life Vertical deer. Kangaroos, um, by definition, too big for their britches. Just saying. Hashtag vertical deer. Um, <laughs> you're hashtag the, check your privilege, kangaroos. I think we should mention that deer are horizontal kangaroos on every single podcast. Oh, well, I was intending to. It just needs but to But I was done. building to it because to but me no, that's the climax like, of the like, show. You're like, okay, I, wanna, I love New York and I love the woods. Oh, my God, I really want a life built of both of these. And then the, the critic comes in and goes... Check your privilege. Who gets to do that? Nobody gets to do that. Stop it. So culture is, you need to be wilder there. Oh, my God. I'm having that moment. I remember, I forget what it was that I was listening to, but Brene Brown on saying on something, she'd gone and someone had asked her a question or something and she, she, I just remember her saying um, she got into her car and she was driving home and she was saying to herself, oh, my God, I am the patriarchy. <gasps> and I feel like, oh, my God, I am the voice of culture, like, keeping me down. Yeah, man. Yeah. Gosh, you have your foot on your own head. Me? I need to get wilder. I need yeah. to be wilder. It's Duh. really wild to have your foot on top of your own head. I saw this guru from India who could do it, a, a dude, but he was on a lot of hashish. We are getting so many potential spin-off podcasts already from today. <laughs> he My could literally goodness. stand on one foot and put the other foot on the top of his head with his neck straight and everything. Hashtag life goals. Life goals from a life coach. Okay. Change, eh? Mm, it sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. Oh, by coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called the change cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change. 
And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right, you can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. We have a question from a bewildered listener. We do. And today the person who's come to us who's trying to figure shit out, we yeah. can swear it's a podcast. It is. Um, is called Paula. And Paula's life puzzle, I think, is one that I was quite excited to read because I think a lot of us can relate to it. Absolutely. Paula's a writer and her issue is about the need to use judgment in her work and discernment. Um, when it comes to her writing and um, but she doesn't want to fall into self-doubt in a sort of self-destructive way but she still wants to retain her judgment about her work and a, a, a discriminating eye with, mm-hmm. with regard to her own work so she wrote to us my life puzzle is about creativity in the face of doubt I'm more than a third of the way into writing a novel and I am paralyzed by this self-doubt I'm fascinated by the story, but I feel the writing just isn't working. It doesn't have the life and direction it needs. It makes me doubt the whole project, not just particular parts of the writing. There's inner conflict. I have the creative part of me that just wants to fly through the writing. Then there are the two faces of the critic. The critic can be helpful because it can make my work better. It uses judgment to improve the writing. The other side is of the critic is the part that throws me into self-doubt and is completely destructive. How do I know if this work is even good or if it's even worth doing in the first place? Mm, this is like, I wonder this every morning when I wake up. Like, is this even worth doing in the first place? <laughs> Should I even get up? Yeah. Seriously. Like, what day is worth doing in the first place? But then when you get to creative work, holy smokes. And so, yeah, I mean, how much do we relate to this? Like, every day's writing, is it good enough? Everything, everything I put online, every time I give a speech or I mean it's like continuous (laughs) evasive action between the self-critic and the part of you that believes absolutely and I do think that it like just even the the existence of that self-doubt is sort of part of the gig of being a creative person in the world that 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 managing that to an extent is is always what you're going to be doing if if you're not completely self-deluded Yeah, I have to say, people who don't ask this question are the ones who worry me because I get this all the time. Um, People people come to me and they say, I just can't do this, man. It's like, ooh, I I can't make it work. I'm not good enough. And then they show me their work and it's amazing. And then there are people who are like, oh, Martha, I just, I love to write. Like you, I sit down and pour forth words continuously. Call the coast, everyone will want to know. And then (laughs) then they give me a manuscript called... Why I am me. <laughs> <laughs> they actually do. And um, it's, uh, it's not great writing typically because there is no critic going, uh, no, your reader doesn't really want to know that. On the other hand, the first time I wrote a poem, famous story, I was 15 years old and I had to write a poem for this poetry contest and I wrote this sonnet, but not before spending five straight nights wide awake in absolute panic and then being put on Valium by my doctor. Then I wrote a poem, but it still embarrasses me. What about you? Have you ever had the, like, how does the struggle between the vicious tormenting critic and the judicious discerning critic, how does that come up for you? For me, I'm always fighting back the the nasty one, and 
you know, I think I do that with a lot of mind games, you know, a lot of just just write it. No one ever has to see it, It's mm. you know, and and just enough to have the courage word by word to keep going forward, mm. you know. I think that, um, you know, where, where Paula is is a really interesting point because she's a third of the way through and I think that's that's mm, an interesting yeah. point in a project because I think you can go a long way on the enthusiasm and excitement of your premise and the beginning of a project and that will get you a long way. Um, but at the same time... Um, that it's going to lag, that, yeah. that you cannot sustain that. And it was interesting because we were talking about this earlier and um, some of a friend of mine had just posted this morning um, a quote from Virginia Woolf that I want to read because it seemed so apt as um, an aspect of this creative self-doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, she talks about, um, this is in her journal, a journal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth mentioning for future reference that the creative power which bubbles so pleasantly in beginning a new book quiets down after a time and one goes on more steadily. Doubts creep in. Then one becomes resigned. <laughs> and I love this. She says, determination not to give in and the sense of an impending shape keep one at it more than anything. I love that, the sense of an impending shape. Mm. And I think that there's something in that 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 can, as in balancing your critics, mm-hmm. there's there's a sense of, for me, to get myself out and get into fidelity to the story I'm telling, mm. to the work that I'm doing to, and forget an audience as well. A lot of the time I can't, I'll get stage fright if right, I picture right. them, but I can sort of pledge my honour to my characters and to the story hmm. I'm telling, if that makes sense, that and that impending sense of shape. That's so interesting. I, I actually rely on, I think everybody finds their own path through this, but mine is the path of fascination. And uh, I recently saw fascination defined as attention without effort. And if a project keeps me fascinated... Like, I will sit and tell people about spider goats until I die. On my deathbed, I will be telling people about spider goats because I find it fascinating. When I was around the same time I started writing in high school, um, I started doing competitive speaking because I had a crush on the guy who was coach, not, he was the student leader of the debate team. So I just climbed on a bus and found myself in front of a judge, passed out cold the first time, fell on the floor. I had such bad stage fright and woke up and it was like, oh, that's the worst that can happen and I'm still alive. So I kept going back, but I didn't do well. And I, they put me in impromptu speaking because I had no skills of any kind. <laughs> um, and then I finally, one tournament, I got to the point where I got to the the quasi-finals or something. I don't remember. What they the quasi-finals. quasi-finals. They had you in a special room. <laughs> in a different room completely. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, for, those, for those of you who speak in words of only one syllable, we have the quasi-finals. <laughs> um, but it wasn't the semifinals. It was not a glorified thing. It was very low. But it had three judges instead of one. And I, we'd get these ballots. And I would veer wildly, depending on whatever the last judge had said. This... One speech, this one three-minute speech, I had three different ballots from three different judges. I read them. They were absolutely contradictory. They had nothing in common. And I was like, well, screw that. Never read another ballot. I would just walk into a room and say whatever the hell I wanted. But it had to be interesting to me. Next tournament, first place. 
Tournament after that, first place. Tournament after that, I became a force. I never slept, and I took large amounts of Excedrin to keep going. That was a headache pill. Um, but sure yeah, it was. I, be- <laughs> I became a force to be reckoned with because I just started doing what fascinated me. And I have to be so fascinated that the, like, complete nervous collapse that is waiting for me in self-doubt cannot get to me. But it's not, it's for me, it's not a feeling of, I, I'm, I owe it to my story or anything. It's just like, oh, I got to follow this trail. This is, oh yeah, I got to follow that trail. And does that even carry you through that sort of initial, like to, through the long stretch? Does yeah. It- by then it's like, I'm hungry. It's like tracking an animal. It really is. You and I both have tracked animals. We used to track bears on the ranch in California. It's so fun. These little humanoid, not little, big humanoid footprints. And you get so entranced by the track itself and the whole world goes away um, because I think the human mind is meant to be a sort of forensic expert, excuse me, a forensic expert that is constantly decoding the world. And when you see something going forward, if something's fascinating to get my attention, it's moving. I love in Tom Brown's books, uh, Brown's book, The Tracker. It's not his book. His ghostwriter was amazing in this one book. Um, but a guy named Tom Brown wrote the tracker and the, the first sentence is the first track is the end of a string at the other end, a being is moving. I can't even, I, it's amazing. If something fascinates me, if an idea fascinates me, I know there's a being moving at the other end of this string and the string is made of words and I am going to follow it. And it's not, I don't, it doesn't feel like invention as much as following. And so everything. for you, the, the, if, so if the self-doubt is sort of is, is mitigated or eliminated by the fascination, do you experience the faculty that, you know, like Paul is talking about the split critic, the one that can make the work oh, yeah. better with discernment mm-hmm. versus the one that tells you that your work is shit? Oh, yeah. And I mean, I make this all sound like I've got it figured out, but last week <laughs> when you were in New York, I sent you a chapter first half, I was looking at your notes, going great, looks good, good point. And then I hit the middle of the chapter and just fell apart because I got into this, into this mental problem with the chapter. And your notes went from, this is great, to, hmm, perhaps you could look at this. And I just saw that it was not, I stopped following the track. I was following it like it was a diaspora of tracks I was running around trying to follow. And it was a terrible chapter. And when I saw it that you knew that. It was not a terrible chapter. It was. When I saw that you knew that, oh my God, the shame and the horror. The horror. The horror. <laughs> I think that's what Joseph Conrad was actually writing about. It was just, he read his own manuscript and he was like, the horror, <laughs> the horror. <laughs> Had nothing to do with Kurtz. Um, he just didn't take it out. Because it was too complicated without word processors. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just stopped writing. It was like I'd run into a plate of glass, you know. And, um, and I had to work out. I had to work out why I stopped, why the fascination stopped following me. I had to get back on the track. But the shame of having lost the track was enormous. Yeah. And I had to cry a lot. So that shame for me, I had to give it a name. It's called Fang. And I was actually reading about using family systems therapy to deal with different aspects of yourself. And this really, I I realized I'd been doing this for years without really knowing it. 
And you let the critic come out, like the nasty critic, you let it have its say. And this one psychologist recommends you even let it write down all its abusive, horrible stuff. And then you say to it, okay, I get that you're somehow a guardian of something in my psyche and that you have to be vicious and ferocious. Now I would like you to step back and I want the writer to step forward and write with you in the back. I heard you. It's very important that you say to the critic, I've heard you because it's not, it, it comes on like a vicious monster, but it's always a scared child. So if you say, go away, I need to focus. It doesn't respond by feeling calmer. It gets more aggressive. So I've been pushing it away and holding it out with fascination. But as I was reading this stuff, I'm like, oh, wait, somewhere in there, I got a little softer. And I started saying I, to, that, to that vicious critic, I get that you're trying to help me. Say what you say. Step back. Will you let the writer come out and write now? And the interesting thing is that if you let it have its say and you ask it nicely, it will and then the writer comes forward and can, you can write down, I'm afraid of the critic. And say, well, the critic's just sitting over there. She's fine. How about we get back to the fascination now? I love that. So do you think that the, um, that, that the writer then, unhampered by that particular voice of the critic, is free to use what Paula sees as the other voice of the critic, which is the, the discerner, the one that says, hmm, I'm going to make this better with this because what I'm wondering listening to you because it seems like you experience those two things as actually quite different yes and I'm wondering if she's maybe grouping them together under this idea of criticism but the that's just a semantic oh, it's interesting, sort of yeah. thing and maybe the discernment and and self-judgment actually can be can yeah. be quite free from each it's other it's funny they do get conflated in the language because even the critics in the newspapers and in the magazines you know we they could be estheticians who are like making discerning judgments but they're often just nasty horrible people so the deal is, I think that that is, it is semantically confusing and it does, I think that gets us into trouble, but it helps me to make a semantic distinction between making judgment and passing judgment. Ooh, I like that. So yeah, so passing judgment is a shaming attack on something that has no constructive quality to it at all. Making a judgment is much harder. It requires much more engagement to say, and this is the way I used to, like when I was at Harvard, drink. And I'd be in these feminist seminars and they would critique patriarchal society. And it was easy to pass judgment, easy. And then I'd say, because I wanted to know, what can we make that will work better? That's asking someone to make a judgment. Like what kind of a social structure do we create? How do we do this class so that it doesn't work on a patriarchal hierarchy. And they would attack. They'd say, men broke this system. They have to fix it. And I'd be like, but they aren't the ones being broken. So um, it's the person who's having to, um, to create. It's the one who has to create who makes the judgment. So as soon as somebody is criticizing in a helpful way, they are supporting you. And what you did with my chapter was you made judgments about what might work better that rang true to me. And it stung because you were right, but it stung the way antiseptic stings and not the way an infected wound stings. When you pass judgment, it's like an infected wound. So feel the difference in yourself between passing judgment on yourself 
which is a random violent attack without creative components, and making a judgment which always creates something interesting. It might not be perfect. It might not even be usable, but it will be interesting. If you're always saying, is this making instead of, is this tearing down? Am I tearing something down here or am I making something? Yeah, and and you can difference. even just hypothetically, you can feel how different that that yeah. feels in the book. Talk about coming to the senses, right? In, in my senses, when I ask myself that question, I know if I'm if I'm hurling rocks at myself yeah. or if I'm just bringing a shrewd eye yeah. to my own work. And, and it's so interesting. I don't know if you'll experience or Paula will experience it the same way. But for me, before I start the creative process, that's when the critic that passes judgment can attack and oh, say, don't even start, don't even start, don't even start. And it happens every single day, pretty much. Really? Yeah. I've always been weird. (laughs) When I write and speak professionally, I have to tone it down, especially the part where I believe the universe loves us and is on our side. A few years ago, I decided to just show up online and say what I really think. This became The Gathering Pod, a series of discussions about how to thrive in a difficult world. So if you need hope, inspiration, or a chance to listen to someone much weirder than you could ever be, Come join me on The Gathering Pot. But the moment I start working on even a single sentence and saying, what can I make? That, I I swear, if they can look at a brain doing this, I'm sure it would just, you'd see the activity switch from one area to a completely different area because they can't work at the same time. So if I can just trick myself into starting to make anything You know, make something rhyme, make something, make a paragraph better, make an idea a little better. The moment I'm engaged in that, there's no room for passing judgment. This is epic. I am just getting tingles. I love this. I I think this is so key because it's almost like you can't be in both places at once, right? Or did you You already say that? You know, like it's like um, you can can only uh, pass judgment when you're, you let yourself be at you take yourself away yeah. from the making. If you're in the creative mode, you literally can't pass judgment. It's, it's alien to the nature of creativity, which is kind of nice if you think of God as creator or whatever you, your image of God is, that, that passing judgment is alien to its nature. And the moment you're in, you're in a passing judgment, you're dissociated from creation itself. Which is so funny because like you think about nature and culture and you think about like the, the, the cliche of the, um, of the film critic or the book, critic like it's such a cliche of culture in a way like some highly urbanized snooty you know head up their own ass kind of person that's a cliche right I'm not saying that's what critics are necessarily though I think some of them are criticizing critics oh my god I don't know (laughs) I think I think I'm I think I'm making a judgment I think I'm discerningly making a judgment okay um and yeah and so like the, the the idea of being back in making feels so much more like you know a frog yeah. than like a critic. <laughs> I was just thinking how funny it would be to go into nature and say I'm going to live off the land as a critic. 
<laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So I'm going to like just like walk up to a tree and go, you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you can't look at me jump. Try and do that. Unoriginal, unoriginal, unoriginal. unoriginal. <laughs> leaves, leaves, leaves. When will you stop with the leaves? Um, but the interesting thing is if you went into nature and you built a shelter and it leaked, then a part of you would say, hmm. what here? What uh, type of wood or what type of leaves would keep the rain off better? Let me try this. Let me try that. I used to do this um, in seminars with this wonderful master coach named Michael Trotta, who's just, oh, he's amazing. And we used to make uh, corporate groups build fire with a few, with a rope, a stick and a board or something and some, some kindling, only they weren't allowed to talk to each other and to make it work, they had to cooperate and, um, what you saw was the ones who passed judgment, they weren't allowed to speak, right? So they'd be like these executives, like jumping around silently, like little boys throwing things at each other <laughs> and like steam coming out of their ears and sometimes literally just running off into the woods, <laughs> literally wow. just running into wow. the woods. They were so frustrated that they couldn't boss people around. But then a group of like the other 10 guys would be like, fascinated. Try this, try that, and, you know, gesturing to each other. And sometimes it took two or three hours, but eventually um, they always figured it out because they were making discerning judgments. Did that work? No. Okay. Did this work better? Yes. Did that work better? No. It's like going to the optometrist. Does this work better or does that work better? A or B, one or two. And that's making judgment is just is it making fire or isn't it? There's no moralizing. There's no shaming in that. So if we can calm the 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 violent, vicious voice, the yeah. one that we know is passing judgment, and yeah. and we and we, I think we can now sort of sense the difference mm. and and sort of separate those out. Then from that place, then you're even making improvements, even um, doing things that maybe you know, oh, this bit could be better, this, I may need to improve this. Right. It's still a creative act. It's still in, in joy and, well, not necessarily in joy in and rapture, but in fascination. It can actually, the how can I make this better can be as fascinating as the thing itself. It's tracking. It's tracking. So to sum up, we've got the, um, you know, if the the violent critic is just attacking you and stopping you from even starting, um let it tell its story, let it have hysterics, write it down, be as nasty to yourself as you want to be, and then say, I appreciate that you as a small child have to be big and scary because you're trying to protect me from, I don't know, my eighth grade English teacher or my mother or whoever it was. Thank you for sharing. Now, would you be willing to sit over there while the writer comes out or, or while the business person comes out or while the dancer comes out or whatever it is? And when it says yes, and it will if you ask it and you, you treat it with kindness, then you come forward and you stop passing judgments and you start making judgments and you write one sentence. And here's the thing. You can tell if it's making fire because it will affect the part of you that is nature. It will affect your body. So Emily Dickinson said when she read a line of poetry that was good, if she felt as if the top of her head were coming off. Um, for me, it's just a whole body chill or sometimes tears in my eyes or whatever. But if a sentence or a paragraph or an idea is right, like we talked about my chapter and I said, what if I did this instead? And you just went, oh, that just landed in my body. 
that was that was making a judgment, making something that had an effect on nature. So yeah. at that point, we were outside culture. I fell apart as a writer when I got to being afraid of the culture. And then you brought me back to tracking through nature as nature. Yeah. And you know you're in nature when you're making. Yeah. And you know what? At that point, it doesn't matter. It truly, tr- I know people say this, but it truly in that moment doesn't matter who reads it or what they think. At that moment, the pure divine act of creation is so fulfilling and meaningful. Sometimes it's ecstatic and sometimes it's hard, but it is so fascinating. (laughs) And, you know, what else are we here for? I was just about to say that. (laughs) You're fascinating that way. You always think what I'm saying. Always think Always. what you're saying. I don't think she really exists except as a figment of my I was just going to say that. <laughs> right? There we go again. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. that was so fun. And I am going to try all these things. Me too. Uh, to, to, I am. Yeah. I'm amazed. Thank you, stuff. Paula, for Thank your you, fabulous Paula. question. I'm glad you figured it out Yes. And uh, we'll see you at the next podcast. See you next time. Be wild. Are you enjoying these shenanigans? We can notify you when a new Bewildered episode comes out. Just text the word WILD to 570-873-0144. You can also follow Martha on the socials for all kinds of ways to improve your life. On Instagram, she's TheMarthaBeck. On Facebook, TheMarthaBeck. Or on Twitter, PlainOldMarthaBeck. Her website is marthabeck.com. You can also follow me, Rowan Mangan, for all kinds of stuff on the writing life, wordsmithing, and honestly, general nonsense. My website is rowanmangan.com. Find me on Insta, rowan underscore mangan. On Facebook, I'm Rowan Mangan Writer. And on Twitter, I'm Rowan Mangan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need a new language. We need a new set of tools to find our way individually and as a group. And I know we can still do this. I put everything I do know about it into Wayfinder Life Coach Training. And the tools that I teach there are to help people redefine how we relate to each other, how we make a living, how we do community. We can only change the world for the better if we redefine how we think And the world needs Wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to MarthaBeck.com and you'll find your way.